0: Okay, uh, welcome everyone to uh, this evening's event, which is part of LSE's seventh Space for Thought Festival, and this week our theme is Foundations. My name's Sue Donnelly, and I'm the archivist here at LSE, and as someone whose job is pretty much predicated on the idea that LSE's history is not only interesting but actually probably important. (laughs) I'm absolutely delighted to be introducing Professor Mick Cox for what is one of the first celebrations in LSE's 120th anniversary. Mick Cox is founding co-director of LSE Ideas and professor of international relations. But at the moment, his time is largely occupied by writing a book about the history of LSE, which will be published as part of the anniversary celebrations. And I hope this evening he'll be telling us a little about how this small, ill-housed, underfunded, often criticised institution became what it now is.
1: Nothing changes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> or it is changing, I'm sorry. Changing. <laughs> so
0: if you're uh, going to be tweeting this evening, we've actually got two hashtags for you. There's um hash LSE Lit Fest and also hash LSE one twenty. Uh, can I remind you to turn your phones to silent and also uh, let you know that this lecture is being recorded and we hope that it will be uh, available as a podcast in the near future. And after the talk, there'll be a chance for some questions and then I hope you'll join us for a glass of wine outside and a chance to have a look at both a little pop-up exhibition about the history of LSE and also our ghosts of the past images. Thank you.
1: So do I start? You start. Oh, right. Okay. Right. <laughs> well. Thank you very much, Sue. Thanks very much. Welcome. Thank you for for coming along. Can you hear me? Okay, at the back. Yes. Good. I was uh, some time ago asked by the director of the school, Craig Calhoun, last summer, in fact, to to write a short, though comprehensive. That was emphasised. Academic, but accessible. (laughs) You can see what task I've got here. Uh, Of an institution marking its uh, 120th anniversary in 2015 and 2016. To paraphrase someone whose name I cannot recall, but I'm sure it was Samuel Pepys, it would have been a whole lot easier to write a long book, which is presumably why the official and very fine history of the LSE written by Ralph Darendorf 20 years ago the first of three sociologists, but the first German to be director of the school, wrote a book comprising 520 pages of texts, 30 pages of notes, and another 15 pages of primary and secondary references. Historians all stand up, you must be happy. was a work of immense scholarship and uh, will no doubt remain the point of reference for all those interested in the school between 1895 and 1995, when he completed the book. 100 years. Certainly without him, uh, I could not have contemplated trying to write my own study. So first of all, posthumously, thanks to Ralph Darendorf and all those who assisted him in his great enterprise. Thank you. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a call from heaven there from Ralph. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's
1: always happened when I give a lecture. I mention Mount Saint. tung when something happens. <laughs> I mention Ralph and he comes in on the on the table. I thought I finessed that quite well, don't you? <laughs> Secondly, a, uh, another vote of thanks to Sue Donnelly, uh, the LSE archivist, who has honoured me by chairing the lecture this tonight, and again without whom I could not have imagined doing what I'm currently trying to do. Thank you, Sue. And finally, thanks to all those at the school who have been associated with the school over the 120 years for making this such an interesting job. To be blunt, I was not sure it would be. But what a story. And no part of the story is as interesting as the origins of the school, about which at least two books have already been written by Janet Beveridge, wife of William, belatedly, and Sidney Kane, another director. So let me say something about the origins, because there's myths and there's truths and legends and traditions. It begins, as we all know, well, I know, uh, in a most dramatic, one might almost say a most Victorian way, with a suicide by a Derbyshire lawyer called Henry Hutchinson, a rich Fabian socialist of some means. The story continues with his bequest of £10,000, sterling, quite a lot of money in those days, to the trustees of the Fabian Society society based in London. Notice the word trustees. This was really quite crucial in the way the money then finally came to the school. If it had been bequeathed to the Fabians themselves, the school may not today exist. And the story reached the conclusion of sorts when Sidney Webb, who will pop up in this story quite a lot, supported by Viscount Haldane, managed through what one writer has rather diplomatically termed a skillful use of the bequest to help launch the school in 1895. This is where we begin. So the LSE was made possible by three things. An accident of history, ironic indeed for a school that later insisted in its motto that it was essential for social scientists to look for the deeper causes of things. Money. Money. Root of all evil, but the root of the school's existence. <laughs> but whose purpose of the, the, the money was never made entirely clear in the bequest. In fact, the school was not even mentioned. And last but not least, the school was made possible by the Webbs in general, but Sidney Webb in particular. And Sidney Webb was nothing if not an adroit uh, player of committees, drafting of letters with deep ambiguities. But he made sure that the money was not wasted on what he and Beatrice Webb termed, quote-unquote, mere propaganda. As Sidney made clear to the Hutchinson trustees in a letter of 8th of February 1895, the purpose of what he then called, and I think was first called, the London School of Economics and Political Science, was to diffuse economic and political knowledge of a real kind, as apart from what he called collectivist shibboleths, which one understands to be kind of generally socialism. The term collectivism is one that they used a lot. Um, But the story continues. Most immediately, the initial offer of leading the school as director was turned down by one of the Webb's Fabian colleagues, Graham Wallace. Uh, this came as something of a shock to the webs and certainly for Sydney, he always thought he could control events. An unexpected blow, as Sydney admitted in a letter in the same year of 1895. More problems were to follow when Sydney began making other appointments to the school. By the way, he did all the appointments. No committees, no letters of reference. Sydney just knew. But he, he faced a problem. And the problem was none other, of course, than his close comrade, George Bernard Shaw, uh, who was always a problem. Uh, (laughs) If you've read any of his writings, you'll know why. But a, A brilliant man. But his close comrade, George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright and great admirer of Sydney. He actually once observed of Sydney that Sydney knew everything. But he also had a profile that suggested an improvement on Napoleon III, a very shavy kind of observation. <laughs> Sydney knew everything but looked better than Napoleon III. Anyway, in spite of his love for dear Sydney and his observations about Sydney's wonderful features, uh, Shaw was not impressed by what was going on and raised his not inconsiderable voice. Less to the idea of a, of, of a school as much. More to the failure of Sydney to appoint true socialists to the initial post at the LSE, Sydney, as always, was never deterred. But his and his wife Beatrice's problems did not end there. For some time, yet another socialist, not terribly sectarian people, the future Labour Prime Minister, no less, Ramsay MacDonald, tried to undermine the school completely. <laughs> either because he had not been offered a job at the school or he still did not believe that the school was socialistic enough. And, and Macdonald you know, conducted quite a guerrilla campaign for some time in various institutions and through the London County Council and various other things to try and make sure that the school didn't get the funding and if it didn't get the funding it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. Finally, to add to their woes, um, the school in its first five years or so and in spite of the Hutchinson bequest and a few others beside us, Sue quoted me there a bit, remained poorly financed, ill-housed, yet constantly subject to the charge that Sydney was always trying to avoid, that it was full of dangerous utopians opposed to private property. Little wonder that in April 1899, and I found this in a letter between the webs, there's wonderful letters that go back and forth between them in this period, Particularly, volume two of their letters. Sydney mused, and I can't remember if it was to the secretary of the Fabians, Mr. Pease, or to his wife Beatrice, there's enormous letters between them, of course. Mused that the school might still fail in spite of all their very best efforts. When I quote from Sydney, it would all collapse like a pack of cards, he noted, and he continued, if it does collapse, well, then it must. We shall have done our best. This was hardly the lusty child described by Janet Beveridge in her small book on the early years of the school, rather romantically entitled An Epic of Clare Marcus. Now, all this wonderful detail, and actually it's very easy to get sucked into the origin story. I think we all do it a bit. Cold War origins at school. Origins of life. We all read the Bible. Origins of will. Darwin. The origin story is a great story. But, uh, and it's very easy to get sucked into all the great detail about it. But you've got to kind of stand back and ask the question, um, which in a sense remains the most important. Why? Why have an LSE at all? After all, there were provincial universities emerging in Britain, Manchester, Leeds, etc., etc., et, cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. Largely industrial north, but not only. Reading was coming around at this time. And there were, of course, two other universities north of London. <coughs> and I think, in a sense, one of the reasons for LSE uh, was Sydney and Beatrice's real fundamental problem with the two institutions of higher learning which had been around for a thousand years or so. Uh, Oxbridge they believed was full of classicists who knew how to conjugate Greek, maybe run empires possibly become archbishops if they were lucky but who knew nothing about society or social problems Graham Wallace who's a great writer in many ways summed it up thus, was a wonderful quote he said if you're at Oxford, which he was Ask for advice about concrete things like the poor relief or how to administer the Factory Act, very LSE kind of thing. And in Oxford, the tutor will look at you over pince nez glasses with a glass of cherry in his right hand and say, oh, Go away and read Aristotle and Hobbes. <laughs> I think Wallace found this a problem because this, isn't what, this isn't what, wasn't what the Fabians in general and the school in particular. Uh, was really interested in, as we know. Oxford was criticised enough. Uh, Cambridge was even worse, <laughs> in their view. Being dominated, as it was at the time, by the aesthetes, led by the great philosopher, totally underrated by Beatrice, of course, called G.E. Moore whose great book, which is almost unreadable, I think, but it was a great book regarded at the time, Principia Ethica. Now, Moore sat at the centre of this aesthetic group who formed the kernel of what later becomes the Bloomsbury set or the Bloomsbury group, composed, in the Webb's opinion, and a very low opinion they had, of artists, <coughs> the sexually promiscuous... And that dubious human being, and genius, the economist John Maynard Keynes. Somebody whose relationship with the school was never anything but distant. Indeed, the conflict with Cambridge continued, as many of us know who have read the history of the school, and Sue knows it very well indeed. It kind of goes on into the late 20s, and then into the 1930s, at the time of the World Depression. Whereas, of course, the LSE worked one would have associated with a more progressive interventionist, government-led kind of recovery process, was arguing the opposite, particularly by the great economist who dominated the school in the economics department, Lionel Robbins, and of course, his buddy and mate from Vienna, uh, Mr. Hayek. whereas Keynes, of course, was advocating a series of other policies. So in a sense you have the great conflict. It really does, does go back however to, to that earlier period of the 1890s. There's a, again a wonderful, a wonderful observation by Beatrice Webb who's a brilliant writer actually in many ways. Her letters are so much more interesting and her diaries are so much more interesting than stuff on local government and trade union which I find almost unreadable. But if you go through the, her letters one of her great letters really goes into this whole issue of her disdain for Cambridge, and it's all to do with Bertrand Russell, whom they liked. Bertrand Russell had come to the school in, eight, in the 1890s, 1890, 1895 I think it was soon, yeah. and it, they'd got him to do five or six lectures on German social democracy, which was a very good subject for the school. Edward Bernstein, the revisionist, the reformist socialist, emerging in Germany at the time. Now Bertrand, uh, Bertie Russell, who she always called, called Bertie of course, went off and uh, left his wife, which they never approved of, um, people shouldn't leave wives once you've married them, as, as a general rule. Um, and, um, and, and in this wonderful letter, which is precipitated by Bertie going off with a woman, no doubt for dodgy uh, sexual reasons, um, he said, I, th- I feel Bertie's fallen under the influence of Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> so It's an absolute gem. It's a real gem and particularly that man G.E. Moore whose book is about what? Nothing. It's about living life to oneself. Self-reflection. It's not about doing the things you should be doing. Studying blue books. Studying industrial acts. Going back and looking at English local government since whenever. Or trade unions or the rise of the co-op movement. So the conflict between Maynard Keynes, the Keynesians in general, and the school, not all the school, but Robbins and Hayek in particular, in the 1930s, around the time... Actually, I think it has some deep roots. Deep roots which go really right back to a highly different conception of what an intellectual should be, and indeed, what a university was, was for. So part of the reason, in a sense, why the LSE, because they just didn't like Oxford and Cambridge. Even though, by the way, a lot of people they brought to the school at first, on a part-time basis, were mainly... Oxford a- academics. Uh, there were other reasons for creating the school. Uh, and again, you can find this quite easily in, in, the, in the literature and in the archives. Uh, not only did Britain have universities, particularly the elite universities, which were not fit uh, for mod- modern purpose, and that's the point here, um, it was also losing out in the economic race to both Germany or and the United States. I mean, this issue of efficiency competition, Britain's decline even, very much comes in to the kind of Webbian view of why you needed different kinds of higher education institutions and why in particular you needed something like the London School of Economics. Later on in 1900 they write a very interesting Fabian pamphlet on this whole issue about national efficiency and the role of universities and it's a very interesting kind of way of linking that issue of national efficiency to universities, but it does relate back to fear—an economic fear of both the rise of Germany on the one hand, and by the way, Sydney Webber hugely admired Germany, hugely admired Germany. Very little anti-German things in in Sydney. He had great admiration for German technology and and the United States. It's quite an interesting. That's also another interesting part of that. Sydney always admired Germany as a model of efficiency. He was fluent in German, by the way. He's, his parents, who were lower middle class, and of course this was part of the problem with his marriage with Beatrice, who came from a rather upper class background. Uh, and, uh, Beatrice, to give her her due, and I give her a lot of due, by the way, in many ways. One of the things which was great about Beatrice, that when she announced she was going to marry Sydney. this went down, frankly, like the proverbial lead balloon with her social set. Why are you marrying that silly little man? from a very lower middle class background, she, she had to break off a series of her relationships particularly with Charles Booth the great student of poverty who cut, them, cut her dead after that so it said something about her strength of personality and, and her particular strength as a woman in a, in a very male world to do what she did to marry Sidney Webb and he may have had the profile of Napoleon III but she said some rather more negative things about him as well now, uh, Sydney always admired Germany as a model of efficiency. But he also had a great deal of time for American universities. And he didn't mean it much like Americans, it has to be said. In fact, generally speaking, they didn't like foreigners. Uh, but had a great deal of time for American universities, not the old elite established universities like Harvard and places like that, but had a great degree of admiration for what they believed were up-and-coming research institutions, such as the Massachusetts Institute of Technology... Uh, John Hopkins, which was then established, and, and, and indeed uh, Columbia University and what it was doing in terms of practical research. And they very much admired the, the research culture, the PhD culture in America, which was largely a German import anyway at the time. So it says by admiring America, they were in part admiring a kind of a German model of, of higher higher education. So uh, Sydney, though, a very typically British person, I mean, I, I can't believe anybody as British nonetheless, was cosmopolitan enough, (coughs) if I could put it like that, um, to draw upon lessons and examples of other institutions in in other countries, if he felt it could contribute. Actually, I always say this to my French friends, even France plays a role in the story. Um, Indeed, Sydney was most impressed with the French system of Econ, uh, specialised schools that train technically competent elites to manage society and administer to France this comes up again in the early and they added to national efficiency Oxbridge overall did not, not for nothing was the LSE called a school one up to the French the French foundations of the LSE, discuss
2: <laughs>
1: I like that quite a lot Finally, of course, um, there were manifold problems facing British industrial society in the late 19th century. Uh, Dallendorf, I think, says less about this than he might have, in my view. Um, But the formation of the LSE, it seems to me, only makes sense if one emphasises two connected facts. One fact, quite obviously, was the reality, the grim reality, of mass poverty, In a society where the life of the majority of British working class men and women was a struggle for sheer survival, made barely tolerable for many and only made tolerable for thousands by gin and gin houses. There were 14,000 in London alone. Some of the early research that Beatrice and others did was on poverty. You know, this is where Beatrice got her, her empirics. You know, She went to factories. She worked in s- sweated shops. She went there as a social researcher. She was a rent collector for, for a social housing associate. This is where she learnt of the condition of the working class. Indeed, so bad was the condition of the working class in the 1890s. By the way, I, I noted this. 50 years after Frederick Engels had written his book on the same problem with the same title The Condition of the English Working Class written by Engels in 1844. They even found during the Boer War and this comes out quite a a lot on this they found out that during the Boer War that they had to turn away the majority of people either volunteering or wishing to join the army because they were so unhealthy. Either they had TB they were too short they had rickets they couldn't see the general health of the population was so dire that so many men were turned away during, during the period of the Boer War when the British army was trying to recruit. And this, of course, raised in some eyes, at least, the spectre of further national decline. The fact too, about the origins of the school in terms of the politics of the period, of course, is connected to the right of socialism in Britain in the 1880s and the 1890s. I, I just cannot abstract... <laughs> the origins of the school, however complicated its relationship is with wider socialism at the time, it simply cannot be taken out. We think of the webs and, and in connect, only really in connection with the school, which is fair enough. If you read, if you read the Beveridge uh, book uh, and, and the Sydney Kane book, it's really the internal dynamics of getting the money, how you then form the school. You know, the, mir- the miracle on whatever, on Clare Market, all that kind of stuff. But one must think of the word, I think, and this is, this, this, in, in this way I, I may take a slightly different angle on this than, uh, than Ralph Darendorf. Uh, it's not a criticism, I think it's an angle. It comes from where my, my head has been for many years. <laughs> but one must think of the Webs it seems to be first and foremost as active socialists, trying to work out their positions in a context of theoretical struggle. I haven't used that word for a long time. Theoretical struggle against other currents of socialist thought in Britain from the 1880s through into the 1890s. The, the big revival of English or British socialism started around 1883. Rise of industrial discontent. The so-called Trafalgar Square riots, which led to police and very great fears on the part of the upper classes in London. That the masses were coming out of their hovels and were going to hang them all. There'd be another Paris Commune, that kind of class fear was very strong at the time. And it's in this context of socialist varieties that one has to understand, it seems to me, the Webbs' outlook and how this, I think, does have some impact on on the school, quite a lot of impact. On the one side, you had what you might call the great William Morris, whom the Webbs didn't have a lot of time for, it has to be said. GB Short loved William Morris. Uh, And on the other side, there were the followers of Karl Marx himself. Marx himself died in 1883, obviously. Engels lived on into the early 1890s. They both had followers, particularly in London, the followers were called the Social Democratic Federation, led by, naturally, of course, a public schoolboy called Heinemann. (laughs) Public schoolboys go quite quite a large part in the role of the rise of the left in the world, I've noticed, over time. Um, The Webbs absorbed themselves in this debate, um, Sidney, who could both read French and German, could read Capital because it wasn't translated until much later. And he had a major advantage over most of the Marxists, none of whom could read French or German. <laughs> <laughs> and he did go through Volume 1, very, very carefully, as indeed did G.B. Shaw. Shaw, for a period, wasn't really a Marxist. But he rejected some aspects of Marxism, which are quite important. A, they didn't like the working class very much. <coughs> Which is a bit of a problem. G.B. <laughs> Shaw once said that after a demonstration he'd been on where he nearly got his head knocked off by a, a large policeman, said, I'm not going on one of those damn things again. I'm middle class and I'm proud of it kind of thing. You know? <laughs> this, this, is why I'm a, this is why I'm a Fabian. This is why I'm a Fabian. I mean, quite, quite seriously. He said, that is my class, quite consciously. Quite consciously. I don't want to join this proletarianized Idea of revolution from below and engaging in revolutionary struggle, which might might get me arrested or have a policeman hit me over the head or something like that. But in this context, there was a great theoretical struggle. I mean, for instance, Beatrice and Sidney sat down and worked out why they didn't like the labour theory of value. Marx's, you know, the Ricardian theory of value, which goes back to the classics of of Ricardo through Smith. Until, no, Marx was not original on his labour theory of value, in fact, it was actually classical. All value contained in commodities is an embodiment of the socially necessary labour time. There you go, my old Marxism coming out again. And they rejected that. And they indeed adopted the the, the marginal principle of Jevons. The value essentially is a utility based on consumer preference, etc., etc., etc. So they rejected that. They rejected certain other aspects of the theory of capital. So they went through all of this. And I think you've got to kind of grasp that they were really theoretical, I mean, no, no doubt people always regard the Fabians as being deeply empiricist, positivist almost, you know, fact-value distinction, Comteans almost, more Benthamite than anything else. But nonetheless, they have gone through a very, what you might call a large period of theoretical uh, clarification. Sidney and Shaw and Graham Wallace and Pease and others, Sidney Olivier, in the 1880s, where the Fabians were emerging, it's a great influence, by the way, And they they emerge with this particular very specific form of English socialism with its stress on small steps and gradualism. Fact fact accumulation. They love facts. One of the first pamphlets written by the Fabians was Facts for Socialists. I wish people had written stuff like that in the New Left Review (laughs) in the 1970s and 1980s, rather on this gibberish that was coming out at the time. Facts for Socialists. And education. And I would say, in this sense, the LSE comes into being in a relationship with this debate within Marxism, and particularly against Marxism itself. Against Marxism itself. I think they're quite conscious. They're quite conscious. They had to climb over Marxism. They had to climb over Marx. Because Marx was, by far and away, the most systemic thinker of that period on the left. I mean, LaSalle was okay, but you know, Marx was the, the, this giant figure. And they had to climb over that and get around it before they could arrive at their own particular conception of socialism in this particular of, of Fabian variety. The inevitability of gradualness, constitutionalism, democracy, uh, non-violent, slowly but surely. Sidney once put it like this, you won't know when socialism has arrived. Which is kind of not very, not very mobilising, is it? He <laughs> it, it will gradually emerge. It's, you know one sewer after another, you know, one gas holder after another, one local government act after another. It won't be an event. There's no cataclysm here. There's no major rupture or coupure, as Altizer once used to say. There was simply a gradual process of the accumulation of reforms, changes, etc., 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 and by by a process almost, you wouldn't even notice it, you would emerge and you would arrive finally at this uh, this conception of society. And I think this is all very important, because I think it does help shape what the schools ostensibly, and I I use the word ostensibly quite carefully, were set up to do, and on what principles... Now, naturally enough, this raises that most difficult of issues concerning the LSE, and it's it's an ongoing issue, I suppose, maybe even today, which is its relationship to politics in general and what we might call loosely the socialist project in particular. Now, here the evidence points, or at least the conclusions arrived at by different writers, points to one of two rather diametrically opposed conclusions on this issue. One is to be found in the, in the autobiography. It's a very fine autobiography, by the way, by Lionel Robbins, the great economist of the school for over 30 years, one of the big beasts of the school, if you like. And in his autobiography, which he wrote, he said, as relaxation after the 1960s and all the occupations at the LSE. <laughs> kind of interesting way to relax, I suppose. Uh, write about yourself. <laughs> um, in, in a very fine autobiography what Robbins suggests is interesting Webb he concedes was personally a socialist that goes without saying and remained one by the way until he died uh, I mean you may not like the form of socialism that Webb espoused you may not like the fact that in the 1930s he discovered a new civilization. unfortunately it was Stalinist Russia um, but he remained a socialist in that, in that peculiar way uh, that uh, he did Webb was personally a socialist but Webb was also careful as we've already indicated not to appoint socialists or what he called collectivists to teach or indeed to run the school there weren't that many qualified collectivists around anyway, said Beatrice and Sydney and by the way and I think this is also obvious Webb did not wish to offend the great and the good who may have wanted to make donations to the school have we heard that one before? <laughs> if you think it's a problem now, it was certainly a problem back then. It really was. You know, there was one very interesting example where Sydney, probably after a sherry or two, or maybe one glass of sherry, um, he was at a railway men's uh, meeting because the, the, railway, the railways were a very important part of the money that came into the school in the early 1900s uh, because, you know, because the railways employed millions of people at the time and many of the administrators came with part-time degrees. Anyway, he was invited to a... Uh, invited to speak in front of the railway men. And I, he either got carried away or he forgot who was paying the bills or whatever. Because the, it was the railway owners who were really paying the bills for these guys to come to the school. And some, and in the London Times a few days later said, Sydney Webb has turned into Jean Jaurès, the radical French socialist. Immediately Sydney starts writing an immensely long letter to the railway owners and to everybody else. saying, so, No, 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 I didn't really mean that. You know, so... He had to live, quote-unquote, in that real world. He really had to live in that real world, where money was scarce, and there wasn't a lot of public money to fund an institution um, in the shape of, 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 the, of, the, of, the, of the LSE. So, at one level, Robbins is right. I mean, if you look at the early appointments, they are, they're, not, they're not very much on the left. Um, yet, I still think it's difficult to think of the school without its founders, who were all Fabian socialists, and however moderate and middle class and elitist they might have been, I think they still saw the school as adding to the sum of scientific knowledge, economic knowledge, knowledge about public administration, and the which would in turn help edge Britain. I use the word edge, not push, far too unfabian. Ever so gradually, away from the age of individualism and laissez-faire, which they saw as, in a sense, historically dying to a towards a new society. They even had uh, they have a theoretical term for this called permeation. You could work with liberals. You could even work with Tories. The issue was that you could permeate them with facts, and the facts would set you free, and inevitably would lead you to a kind of collectivist understanding because that was logical outcome of an empirical understanding of the way the world really worked and the social facts of the time. Well, it's easy to sort of decry it now, but that, that was the, the, kind of, the kind of view. Beatrice, of course, as always, and very honestly, and again, I, I don't know what Sue f- feels about reading Beatrice's way, but I certainly love reading those letters and the diaries. Um, she, she observed in 1895, part of the role was at Evelessie, which she said in her words, and, and quote, to permeate, don't forget that word permeate, very important word in, in the Fabian lexicon, to permeate, the young middle class men, um, and there were some women, by the way, and I'll come on to that in a moment, and catch them, I love this, catch them for collectivism. Grab them. Before they enlisted for the other side. Before they enlisted for the other side. So there's a kind of a political purpose here. However much they try to obscure it, I think, however much they try to you know, play it down, for all sorts of reasons, which I, I've already dealt with. And of course the school in the end did attract several students and quite a few staff of a critical disposition towards the existing economic order. Think here for example of the already mentioned Graham Wallace. He became the first professor of government at the LSE, and a very distinguished one he was at that. Think more obviously of Graham Wallace's successor in the Department of Government, the more radical, anti-capitalist, highly controversial Harold Lasky. Probably the dominant figure, political figure, in, in the school between 1950 and, uh, 1920 and 1950. In fact, uh, Darendorf in his fine book actually talks of this, that period as the Lasky era. You know, he, almost like he defined an age. Um, and Lasky, of course, began as a radical liberal and ended up as a kind of Marxism radical, but within the Labour Party. By the way, one of Lasky's last books... Well, it wasn't a book. It was an introduction. It's a very Lasky kind of thing to do. The Communist Manifesto, of course, was published in 1948. It had its 100th anniversary in 1948. Lasky was still alive. And what did Lasky do? He wrote an introduction to the Communist Manifesto on behalf of the Labour Party. Think about that. The interesting thing about it was not only did he write a very long introduction, the introduction was longer than the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I kept reading this introduction. I said, "Where does it end and I can get to the Communist Manifesto, which, of course, I knew all about anyway. Um, You should add others to this uh, list of progressives or people on the left. Let me just say people on the left. Think to the economist Hugh Dalton, who was at the school in the 1920s and, and, and 1930s, and he went on to become Chancellor of the Exchequer of the 1945 Labour government. And don't forget Clement Attlee. He's often to forget Clement Attlee, as Winston Churchill was saying. "There's a modest man who has much to be modest about. <laughs> but don't forget Clement Attlee, Prime Minister of that same government, who lectured at the LSE twice between 1913 and 1915, and then again between 1919 and 1923. He actually got the job over Hugh Dawson, which is quite interesting. I am not go into that, it's quite an interesting story. Then you can add others to this list, such as Attlee's private advisor, Evan Durbin. Whose, whose work I've just been, been reading on democratic socialism and planning. Another economist at the school and an influential figure in the debate in the 1930s and 40s on socialist planning. <laughs> Add to that the great Tawney, R.H. Tawney, author of crucially important works such as the 19, I think 1925, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, and his highly influential book, Inequality. And, of course, there was Leonard Hobhouse in sociology, the first great sociologist did, who, like so many... Of the greatest figures of the LSE during the years was a socialist, albeit one of a distinctly liberal hue. The influential anthropologist, and the anthropology department is a very important part of the school story from Malinowski through Firth and on, but the influential anthropologist Edmund Leach, who was at the school just before and after World War II, puts it thus, when reflecting on the school during his time here, the general temper back then, he noted, was egalitarian and the general style fabian, and so it goes on. But Leach, interestingly and necessarily, draws our attention to something else in the school's early history, something far less comforting or comfortable. Namely, the extraordinary influence of, on many social scientists of various biological theories derived from an understanding of Darwin and mediated through the work of the founder of the eugenics movement, Francis Galton. At its most basic level, this, this idea, this movement, and it was a movement, but with its own journal, ...took it for granted that there were higher and lower groups of people... ...not to mention higher and lower classes... ...on the evolutionary scale, a la Darwin. The problem, it was then argued by the eugenicists... ...and others who were influenced by their ideas... ...was that the classes with the right characteristics... (laughs) ...namely the professional middle class... ...were not having enough babies. Whereas those with all the wrong characteristics... (coughs) The poor and the destitute, or what Jack London, in his wonderful book called *The Peoples of the Abyss*, written in 1900, called *The Peoples of the Abyss*, they were having far too many children. This was the fundamental population problem. Not only that, too many, but too many of the wrong kind. And of course, this then applied also, dare I say, to racial issues and, and gender issues as well. So it applied right across. The and one of the things that struck me, not just about school, but about intellectual life at that time, was how powerful eugenicist kinds of thinking was. I've just finished reading a wonderful book by John Kerry, it's called The Intellectuals and the Masses. And it's about really intellectuals, not about people like that, I mean you're talk about writers like D.H. Lawrence and, and, and others, uh, the great Irish writers and things like this, W.B. Yeats and uh, Pound and all the others. Virginia Woolf, and they have a terribly appalling attitude towards the masses, vulgarisation, lowering standards. G.B. Shaw shared that as well. And as such thinking permeated much so-called intelligent debate at the time, including the discussions had between great social reformers, including those closely associated with the school, No doubt about it. Harold Lasky, George Bernard Shaw, and of course the Webbs, whose private letters and notes to each other are full... Full of what I call class prejudice, and sometimes the most appalling ra- racial and national stereotypes. It's part of the history. Can't brush it under the table. It's there. Dare I even use the Webian notion? It's a fact. <laughs> Indeed, the Web seemed to prove the truth of the old adage that there's nothing more likely to induce dislike or disdain <laughs> of certain groups of foreigners than actually visiting them in their own countries. <laughs> And they did travel a lot, though here they were not of a single voice. Thus, while they had nothing but contempt, and it really was serious contempt for the Chinese or the Koreans, uh, they were never very nice about the Irish either, I've noticed. <laughs> they had a great deal of time for Indians and the Japanese. So, you know, they, 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 were just, they, they had a kind of gradation of, of, of prejudice, if <laughs> might put it like that. Moreover, while they were hardly anti-imperialist, anti-imperialist in their outlook, both both supported Empire at that time. In fact, Sydney, according to this is a great line from Beatrice, Sydney, according to Beatrice in one of her letters, Sydney gave a first rate lecture to the Japanese in Tokyo in nineteen ten about how much the Japanese could learn from the British Empire. Which I kind of read over and over and over again. In the light of what subsequently happened, it kind of woo, perhaps they learned too much. But to be, to be fair, if I might use that, term, that awful term, uh, to be fair, and I don't want to be too fair, uh, they were hardly uncritical admirers of all things British and imperial. imperial. Um, indeed, according to Norman Mackenzie, the great editor of, of the webs, Beatrice at least returned home from India in 1912 with some understanding of the Indian nationalist movement and, uh, and of the shortcomings of British rule. Later, of course, the LSE, if not the Webbs then, but the LSE became very much identified with the movement for liberation within the British Empire. India especially, where it was often remarked later that the Indian Congress Party, led by Nehru, learned its brand of socialism from the kind of Fabian socialism increasingly propagated in and around the school during the 1930s and 1940s. So it's a complicated story. It is a complicated story, but the story nonetheless needs to be told. But socialism, as they say, does not butter any parsnips, and nor was the history of the school in its early days simply a tale of what I call Fabianism with footnotes. Quite a good phrase, I thought. that I thought it would get a better <laughs> reception. There you go. Uh, after all, its first professor of economics, whom you can see out there, rather wonderful-looking man, uh, the redoubtable Edward Cannon, who remained at the school for the better part of 30 years – he essentially created economics at the school – was, in essence, a liberal economist – who might have had some time for reform, but not for socialism or planning. Indeed, he made the interesting observation in one of his writings that socialism could not work in a world composed of single, competitive nation-states. Quite simple. Just it wouldn't work. Nor, of course, was his successor, Lionel Robbins, a socialist or a planner. Quite the opposite. In fact, having drunk deeply at the well of the free-market Austrian school of economics in the 1920s... uh, Robbins was fluent again in German. He then went on to bring one of its brightest stars from Austria to the LSE in 1930, none other than the hugely influential Hayek, who remained here until his departure for the USA in the late 1940s. Though only after he, Hayek, had authored his great polemic against socialism in 1944, The Road to Serfdom, which, by the way, went on to sell 600,000 copies, largely thanks to it being serialized in that theoretical academic journal called Reader's Digest. <laughs> but Hayek made a hell of a lot of money. Hayek, in turn, helped bring the anti Marxist philosopher Karl Popper to the school, which, according to Popper, and it's a wonderful, wonderful turn of phrase by Karl Popper, helped save his life. Not literally. Popper was then living in provincial hell in New Zealand. It saved my life. Get me out of this place. Please get me back to Europe. Um, Moreover, when the ever-political Marx-admiring Harold Lasky died, rather tragic circumstances, at around the same time, who was he replaced by? None other than the rather apolitical and definitely not Marx-loving political philosopher Michael Oakeshott. So it is not a simple story. All this I think points to at least one really special feature of the school, perhaps its most distinguishing the diversity of opinion to be found here. This can be seen in the appointment of its first four directors the man who turned the job down in the first place, Graham Wallace was not replaced by another Fabian but rather by A.E. Hewins, whose rather wonderful picture is out there. Hewins was energetic and effective but he was no Fabian appointed in 1895 he left a few years later to work with Joe Chamberlain in support of trade tariffs in the British Empire Later he authored a book in 1929, soon before he died, interestingly (laughs) entitled, they used to have titles like like this, The Apologia of an Imperialist. (laughs) Try writing something like that today. (laughs) Hewins, by the way, was a significant economic uh, influence on on Chamberlain's thinking on tariff reform in the empire. Uh, uh, Hewins was followed in turn by the greatest geographer of his day and another imperialist, Halford Mackinder, uh, a crucial figure in the world of of geopolitics. Um, it's true, McKinder left the job after a short while. He was then replaced by a genuine Fabian, actually the only one to become a director of the school finally, Pember Reeves. Now, Reeves was the real political article and was nothing if not dedicated to the cause of Fabianism and political reform. So much so that he named his only son Fabian. <clears throat> who died under very tragic circumstances in World War I. His daughter Amber, Amber Reeves, became even more famous as a result of an affair with another man off the left, the writer H.G. Wells, who, unlike Beatrice and Sidney Webb, not only seemed to enjoy all things bodily, (coughs) I'll leave that to your imagination, but even believed in that terrible thing, terrible at least to the Webb's, namely free love, which they certainly did not approve of. However, when Reeves resigned in rather sad circumstances... He was replaced in 1919 by perhaps the most effective of all early directors, perhaps the greatest director of all, according to Darendorff, the great social reformer William Beveridge. But Beveridge was a true liberal of the old school, and no great lover of the left. Actually, at one time in the 1930s, I can always sympathise with him, he tried to gag Lasky, which was a very impossible thing to do. Nor did he much like Keynes or Keynesianism. This is kind of weird because you always think beverage, beverage report, welfare state, Keynesian actually he didn't like Keynes, he didn't like Keynesian economics. So try and work that one out if you can. But he was certainly effective, and though not the easiest of men, that's putting it nicely, or the most inclusive of, inclusive of directors. I've tried to be very diplomatic here. Um, there was in fact what I call a Magna Carta moment in the nineteen thirties against his authoritarianism, which changed the governance of the school, probably forever. At least Beveridge took the school from where it had been something of a work in progress to laying the foundation of a truly great, globally renowned and well-funded institution. For that reason, I think, that's why Darren Ball thinks of him as being the great... Old... But This raises a question which I've asked before. How do we explain this success, nonetheless, having said all that? It's an interesting case study. After all, the school could have easily died an early death, but it did not. On the contrary, it had by the 1930s and certainly by the 1940s becomes something very special, very distinct, and very influential. There were different reasons, I think, and I've tried to kind of work this one out. George allowed me the privilege of giving a lecture recently on that. That kind of helped me think about it. One, as have i implied, was leadership. Not all directors were great, but some of them did quite a lot of good things. And each of the directors I have mentioned, with Sydney always keeping a close eye on things, he appointed all of the directors, in effect, until the 30s help take the school forward. Indeed, the more I've read the early history of the school about leadership, the more I'm drawn to the simple conclusion, no Sydney aided and abetted by his more brilliant wife, Beatrice, then no school. Quite simple. So leadership makes a difference. Huge. Another reason for success, I'm sorry to say this, and I've implied it before, was money. Or precisely the ability to lay claim to as much of the dirty stuff as possible. <clears throat> I know this is a bad thing to say in these days, but indeed, without private donations, starting with Hutchinson... Continuing with Bernard Shaw's rich wife, uh, Charlotte Payne Townsend, after whom fifth floor, sixth floor is named in the old building, and moving forward with the philanthropists Passmore Edwards and later Sir Ernest Castle, amongst others, the school may never have moved ahead. Here, too, it is worth mentioning money from two foundations, Tata and Rockefeller. In two countries, India and the USA, with interestingly, the school had, I think, was not only a close, but a special relationship. I know it's a much overused phrase, but I think it has had, and certainly would both continue to have. Then I think there is the library. I was thinking about this the other day. The library was actually established as a separate entity at first. And I think this has been established alongside the school, but with a distinct identity of its own. It's played a major role in helping build the school. Interestingly, Robbins came back, of course, and raised an enormous amount of money for the, for the rebuilding and the reconstruction of the library, turning it into one of the great libraries of the world. But it's been crucial for research and, and drawing people here. To this I would also add the London family, <coughs> or more precisely where the LSE is located in London, between midway between the city and Westminster and abutting onto the law courts. In a sense it sits at the heart of power, and different forms of power. You could also say, if, if you like theatre lander, which I do, it also sits at the heart of cultural power as well. It's at the heart of things. Somebody once said, you couldn't think of anything other than the London School of Economics, particularly where it is located. I think it's very important. London also entered into the veins of the school in many ways. It still does. Lends to the school a definite buzz, a sense of place located, as has always been, in one of the most important international cities in the world. <coughs> But none of this would have mattered so much but for three absolutely crucial factors which I'll briefly go through. The first, I would insist, is the conception of the school itself as being devoted primarily, indeed only, to the economic and social sciences in the broadest sense of the word. This gave a certain cohesion to the school, perhaps it still does. It certainly gave an identity to the school. It also allowed the school to create an enormous comparative advantage for itself itself by the sheer weight of what it was doing across the range of selected groups of subjects, from economics, most obviously, through statistics, accountancy, to sociology. LSE was sociology for 30 years almost. International relations and on to anthropology. Indeed, in many of its chosen areas, the LSE either became the brand leader or a place which, because of its specialisation, attracted some truly outstanding people. The second reason, I think, for success is equally true. So, The school has never been or pretended to be a traditional ivory tower. Now, there's nothing wrong with towers, (laughs) especially if they're made of ivory, Um, but engagement with the real-world issues and solving problems rather than simply gazing at them from afar I think has been one of the distinguishing features of the school. Look at the webs, deeply attached to facts, but only because these facts could be deployed for political and social purposes, from reforming the poor law possibly to thinking about a new constitution of the Labour Party in 1918, which Sydney, by the way, more or less, wrote. Indeed, if one is looking for impact, we all do these days, then look at the part played by LSE faculty during World War II. David Stevens wrote a lovely piece recently on World War I and the LSE, but this was about members, the students and, and faculty went away to fight, in, in, including Tawny, by the way, uh, in, in, including... Including Robbins and including uh, Dalton, uh, Dalton yeah, Hugh Dalton, who came back very anti-German as well, by the way, unlike the web. Um, actually, if you look at World War II, what is interesting, although many went away to fight and no doubt many died, um, it's interesting to see how many of the, the senior LSE faculty played a key role during World War II in the planning. I mean, it's really, really amazing. I haven't even g- gone through all of these, but it's a really extraordinary story. Now, many universities were doing the same, but the LSD was doing it in space. Dalton was, I think, in economic planning. Charles Webster, the great historian, by the way, was one of the crucial players in the formation of the United Nations. The Americans always claim that for themselves. Well, I'm sorry, Webster played a crucial role in, in that as well, in the drafting of it, in the discussions with the Americans. Uh, Arthur Lewis, uh, our, our, our first great uh, uh, black economist at the school who, who later left the school for Manchester and then went on to Princeton, and later got a Nobel Prize in economics. He was in the Colonial Economic Secretariat. And a number of economists, uh, Robbins and others, played a crucial role in economic planning for the peace. If you read Robbins on this, he's he very much involved in Bretton Woods and, and all the rest of it. Finally, the school flourished, not only because it stressed research, but I really want to emphasise this point, but also because it had some very great teachers as well. This is very well worth remembering today when we all seem to be so fixated on publications that that we can forget that students were and students remain the lifeblood of the school. And that the reputation and reach of the school has depended less on what this or that academic says in some rather obscure journal, but what they say in front of students in the seminar and in the lecture theatre. In Welsh... The word for professor is, I believe, the same word as for teacher. And there have been some notable ones at the school. Graham Wallace, for example, who I've mentioned several times, was, according to Lasky, a great lecturer. Lasky, in turn, was a legend. So, too, was Lionel Robbins and the anthropologist Malinowski. However, they, in turn, needed interesting students. And here, again, we discover one of the secrets of the school's success, from the outset, it, it attracted interesting and diverse and different kinds of students to the school. Significantly from the outset, the school always had a very good number of women in its student body. Not enough women on the faculty, to be sure. It also attracted older students. Many of its students, moreover, came here to do research. Indeed, much later in the 1980s, there was even talk of making the LSE a pure graduate school. Finally, of course, and I use the word in a neutral sense, there were the Foreigners. <laughs> In 1910, in a wonderful speech, Mackinder says, some people say there are too many foreigners at the school. I don't think so. They bring a new wealth of experience and then take the school out to the rest of the world and give us that. That's in 1910. That's Mackinder, who was limited in other ways of thinking about the world, but nonetheless had a globalist perspective. And I think that, again, has been extraordinarily important, particularly Indians who have come to the school. Uh, Americans, Chinese I just had one of my graduate students do a bit of research on how many Chinese have come to the school over the years and how much influence they've had. Not as many as the Indians, certainly not as many as the Americans but part of it. I'd also say one other thing, it's not just the students in fact, uh, and again we, LSE like the West, Europe and the United States has benefited from one other thing the disaster of fascism in the 1930s because so many people had to escape get out and many not all stayed here but many came here and the school actually did an enormously good job in bringing those to Britain in that particular period. By the way, one person who was rather important, in this was Walter Adams, who later was a very controversial appointment as a director, but he was a liberal, um, and, and, and not as he was caricatured at the time by those on the far left and others. It was a kind of a sad end to his life, I think, because he played such a terrific role here in the 1930s in doing that. Now, all this focus on the past, and I'll try and move forward as fast as possible – it surely raises a problem hinted at, hinted at by Darendorf and spoken sotto voce by others, namely that there was in some sense a golden age of sorts in the school's history, culminating with the announcement of the Beveridge Plan, William Beveridge, during the war, followed, followed by the election of the Labour Party, stuffed full, by the way, of Webby and Socialists in 1945, many of whom have been associated with the school. Thereafter, the school, it has been argued, did not become any of the less important, but it may have become less vibrant, less engaged, possibly less left-wing too, with the death of Lasky and the coming of Oakshot and Popper. It's not an easy question to answer. Certainly the good students kept coming and the school kept teaching and doing its research. It was not without impact either, and when the Wilson government was elected in 1964, many in the school found a new policy niche. Abel Smith and others like that. But there was, I think, something different, that's all I can say, Whether this was change in the school itself or a change in the times through which the school was passing in the post-war period, more prosperity, the Cold War, whatever, impossible to divine. But the great divisive debates of the 1930s, the excitement, were not quite as exciting, I think, in the 50s and the early 60s. Even the great troubles, so-called of the 1960s, that swept through the school, did not much change things as far as I can see. Indeed, its first and most tangible result, apart from leaving a lot of people very miserable, um, was that the most important Marxist at the school, Ralph Miliband, decided to leave leave for Leeds, while two of its more radical lecturers, including the later editor of the New Left Review, Robin Blackburn, got the sack. This was decidedly ironic, of course, for following the 1960s, the LSE got an even bigger reputation of being terribly radical, terribly red, full of dangerous trots, when in fact it was anything but. That said, this did not prevent the school continuing to expand and gain an ever greater international reputation, nor did it stop the school having influence on British and world politics in two very interesting ways I would suggest, and on this I will bring my comments to an end to try and bring it a little bit more up to date. Impact. We love impact. Well... It seems to me there's two very obvious ways in which this occurs. We would have got four stars on REF on this, by the way. Maybe five. The first was in terms of the Thatcher Revolution. Much understudied, and I understand why, given the appearance of the school as a left-wing bastion. Yeah. But read uh, Ralph Darendorf and I.G. Patel's book, uh, another director uh, uh, from India. You get the impression that Thatcher was some tsunami-like disaster for the universities in general and for the social sciences in particular. How could it be otherwise, given her view, that government was the problem, that cuts would have to be made, and that there was no such thing as society? Pretty weird, if you're in a social science institution. But read Thatcher. Whom did she admire greatly, maybe most intellectually? Hmm. Well, quite a lot of old LSE economists and philosophers, including, most obviously, Hayek, whom she cites three times in her memoirs, very, very positively. She both read The Road to Serfdom and The Constitution of Liberty. She, in fact, apparently, I'm told the story, it comes out somewhere, I don't know the source. she took The Constitution of Liberty out of a book, and says, this is what we believe in. <laughs> oh, right. But not just Hayek, by the way, Alan Walters was a professor of economics here, played a big role, in at least thinking about the markets, moving beyond Keynesianism. The old anti-Keynesianism, in a sense, is coming back again. Um, and Arthur Seldon, who'd been at the school in the 1930s and went on in the 1950s to create the right-wing or libertarian think tank, the Int- Institute of Economic Affairs. He was very later influential with Keith Joseph. Even one of her political advisers had been at the LSE, though as a student and as a Stalinist after the war, not as a free marketeer, the extraordinary Alf Sherman. If you know anything about Alf Sherman, you'll know what I'm talking about. So the point I'm trying to make here is that if one is thinking of influence, impact, or whatever else, many things brought factor and factor factorism into being, but there is a relationship here. Via Hayek, via Walters, via, via a number of the free market ideas, which were espoused quite strongly by certain members of the school. Indeed, in his book on, on Canon, which is an interesting book, uh, Arthur Selden actually writes, says, actually, if you want to find out the origins of free market liberalism, go back to canon. You know, so the, the foundational di- uh, e- professor of economics, in a sense, is seen as the person who's taking, taking it forward. Now, I think that's a kind of genealogy I'd kind of you know, raise some doubts about, but it's an interesting question. But we're still, again, in the sense of you know, truth and objectivity in making the complete picture... It's something to be, to, be, to be conjured. The second form of impact, which brings me full circle and close to the end of my rather overlong lecture remarks, relates more directly to the evolution of social democracy. I think it could be said uh, that social democracy in Britain in, in the 20th century makes, cannot be understood without the LSE. Whether it's the formation of the 30s, the Labour government, how, how, how Labour evolves over time. I think there is a, a strong sense that one can say that. Um, but social democracy also keeps on evolving and changing (laughs) and the idea of the third way which in a sense is in the title of my lecture of course was very much concerned with the school (laughs) as we well know and its energetic director of the late 1990s Tony Giddens the deeper sources of the third way have been much discussed and much dissected was it the result of changes in the world world system (laughs) globalisation the end of the Cold War Was it because of alterations in the class structures of modern industrial societies? The working class no longer existed in that sense, in the traditional sense. Or was it even because of Thatcher herself and the success of Thatcherism? She had said that there was no alternative to the market and that markets were the only game in town and that traditional socialism and planning, a la Webb's, were a nonsense on stilt and to be fair to Tony Giddens, Tony basically seemed to agree. The real question then was not to go backwards to a world that had died a death, but how to develop a modern, new form of social democracy in a new world where the old truths about the forward march of socialism and the appalling inefficiencies of market capitalism, these truths which had so inspired the Webbs, no longer made any sense at all. One can only wonder, wonder reflect what Sydney and Beatrice Webb, that very effective partnership, without whom we would not be here today, would have made of the third way. And on that note, I shall conclude. Thank you very much indeed.
2: Well,
0: thank you. Uh, Plenty of food for thought there. Um, Time for questions now. We have some uh, roving mics, so if you could wait till a microphone reaches you, uh, and give your name uh, before you ask your question. So we've got Someone over there and over at the end of the third row. Could we take those two questions. Yeah. And sure.
3: Yeah. Angela
0: Ellis Jones, if there was such antipathy between the LSE and Cambridge, yes. why was the school evacuated to Cambridge no, no, and Oxford no, no, where during a, the Second World it's War? A, it's a fair
1: point. I mean, basically, it, it, it was. But there was the antipathy there. I mean, you know, you can you can see it in. In what Sydney, uh, Sydney Webb and Beatrice said about the, that Cambridge aestheticism of the 1890s, which led to the to the the kind of group of people around the uh, around Bloomsbury, um, there was a different approach, that's for sure. And you can certainly see it in the 1930s discussion. I mean, there's a whole literature on Hayek versus Keynes. I mean, and that was very much seen as an LSE. Um, LSE Cambridge conflict that's, that's an overly simple way because within the LSE there, there were some Keynesians and clearly within Cambridge there were some who were much more marketeer than Keynes or you know people like uh, Joan Robinson and, 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 and the Italian the, the great Italian uh, Schraffer who was then also at Cambridge so it's, it's overly simple I agree with it. Uh, to be honest I have not got a simple answer to your question because what I'm simply saying is that the, the formation of the school intellectually and organisationally in terms of the intellectual debates did carry with it a certain anti-Cambridge perspe- perspective whether it was about the aesthetics of G. E. Moore or whether it was about the economics of Cain it was there um, why then they went to Cambridge is a, is, a, is, a, is a question maybe because it was available perhaps because it was there there is a, a rather nice story by the way which may also fall onto your question with, uh, I think it's Hayek and Keynes doing fire watches on top of a building in Cambridge, because the, the, at that time the bombers were dropping, uh, dropping flares. On and so the, I don't know if they got up there and, and sort of shook hands. So, so, well, it's all over now. I'm sorry about the little disagreement we've had. But the answer is I think it was simply there. Sue, you may have an easier answer to that. I Um, think
0: also it was a slightly different time. Carl Saunders had become a director who was a very pragmatic, organised... I mean, he had organised LSE's evacuation before the war was declared, Mm. was well ahead of the game, and I think he just had Mm. a a different set of connections maybe than some of the earlier people at LSE. And I suppose also
1: if you're threatened by Nazi Germany, that might reconcile... (laughs) Cambridge doesn't seem so bad. (laughs) ...in the past, whether about the aestheticism of G. Moore or about free markets. I mean, when you've got bombs dropping on you, that kind of clarifies things rather, rather <laughs> rapidly. But anyway, thanks for the question. It's an interesting I'm happy to look into that a bit more. Yeah. Sure. There's another question. Good Dr.
3: Keith Postler, I'm staff, Department of Statistics and Methodology. Um, I want to take you a little uh, beyond the third way, and I oh, wondered if you'd entertain that. Um, do you see LSE as fit for purpose today?
1: I'm not paid to answer questions. Like that. <laughs> uh, where's, where's, where's Craig? Um,
0: <coughs> next door. Next door. All
1: right. And why is he next door? I mean, he should be here to ask. Look, I, I, I had a few kind of flourishing notes at the end, which I was going to you know throw around. Mm. Well, okay, I, I, I will. Um, look, I mean, at the end of his, of his very fine book. I, I don't want to keep saying it's a very fine book, but it is a very fine book. It's, it's, it's a very long book. Uh, <laughs> Ralph Darendorff has a very pessimistic last page or two when he reflects on the future of the school in the 1990s. But he also says something else, that Fabianism had failed, in, in essence, that uh, the, the, the idea of creating a different kind of school, you know, based on, fa- broadly speaking, Fabian principles, that, that, you know, that, that had failed in, in some ways. Now, I, I think that's too harsh, too harsh a judgment. I mean, after all, it's very difficult to, it to me to imagine the Labour government of 1945 and many, many other things which are part of the history of social democracy in the 20th century without the LSC and without the webs. I mean, I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it, so I'm not sure. If, I, if one is, however, saying, you know, looking forward, first of all, I don't don't make predictions because I'm bound to be wrong. Uh, look, I, I, I kind of have three, three ways of posing this, and this is simply cliché. Um, I think one is, I mean, it's the obvious one, how to adapt to a changing world. I mean, that's the obvious one. I mean, you know, when the webs... I mean, I said, you know, the, the environment then was... Rising tide of socialism, mass poverty, the German economic threat, the rise of the United States. You know, since then, things have changed somewhat. And then after 1917, there was the Russian Revolution, which again changed the nature of the world until it collapsed finally in 1991. That world is gone. And it's not going to come back. And, you know, I mean, the Web's at least thought their way into a position which they thought made for a relevant institution at the time. And I think that is part of what we are still trying to think our way through here at the LSE today. I mean, you know, I hear the stories. Is LSE just become a university for rich kids? I hear this all the time. Um, is it just a finishing school for people with lots of money and whose parents, you know, uh, can send their kids to the best schools in the world in order to get the best results, then they come to the school, and then they, they, then they go into finance. nothing wrong with finance, but you get my point. Um, is, is does the school still have a social purpose as opposed to an elite purpose? Um, should it even worry about all this tradition and its history which I've outlined I, personally I think it should because, not because I'm a traditionist per se but I do think traditions matter for the health of an institution I do think that's really quite important um, I, I think there's a second problem of engagement how to engage with the real world it's a difficult job as we have found out at this school uh, who do you engage with at what level and what degree what depth do you engage you, we do engage it's the old question. You know, Webb set this question up, and it's still the in question today. Are we purists? Do we stand aside? We, do we walk around with a T-shirt on, us saying, "I have the right to be irrelevant"? That's fine. I don't mind. I'm really in favour of people having T-shirts saying, "I really want to go and study Plato, and I don't want to talk anything about poor laws, social reform, inequalities, women's position, etc., etc., etc." That's fine. Um, but it's a question of the engagement, and I think that is still very much part of the school tradition. I'd also come back, and I, I, I'm, I'm beginning to sound more Thatcherite than than Thatcher, but maybe that's what's happened to me over the years. Um, it, it's the Webbian question of competition. Look, the LSE is a great school. It's got a, it's got a great history. It's also got a murky history. The eugenicist side it's cannot be left out of the equation. Uh, not at all, nor should it be. And not, by the way, does Ralph Arundorff leave it out of the story. Maybe you should set more, but, you know. Um, it's, a nasty, it's, it's the dark side of progressivism. as as, as it was once put in in an article in the New Statesman but we do live in a world where we've got to compete now what does that mean? it's a very web question universities should not be subordinated to some grand national purpose I don't think they should be subordinated to business alone academics have the right to be irrelevant knowledge should not always be useful but nonetheless to use a cliche universities live in an increasingly competitive environment Uh, and that competitive environment is not only in this country uh, as we know how much property kings is gobbling up all around us at the moment. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's also a wider competitive environment, and particularly uh, with the United States. You know, Whatever one says about the, the world of universities, the fundamental point of reference in, in world universities, the top 58 universities in the world, after all US universities, that's got to be our metric, that's got to be our point of comparison. How do we then, as a relatively small institution with more limited, resources, I've just come back from the States and the resources are pouring out all over the place, pretty second rate places as well. You know, how do we as a great institution, you know, compete realistically with, with where the real competition lies? Uh, I think that to me is some of the issues I, I would want to, and also finally how to adjust to a changing world. You know, we look at the, you look at the students in the 1920s, you'll see them out there, uh, Quite a, quite a lot of non Brits, uh, non-English people, all very well, and that's given the strength to the score. We now live in a world where our Asian students are coming here in very large numbers, our Chinese students are coming here. They have different perspectives. How do we adjust to that? So those are some of the questions. I've got no easy pat answer, but those are some of the issues I think we've got to address. And they're very difficult issues, and I'm not sure there are easy answers to the problem.
0: and then I'll take okay. one uh, Jim Thomas
3: uh, Stickett Hi. Hi Jim Hi I wanted to make uh, three very quick points Thank you um, Going back to Cambridge I think in the late 19th century it was also um, criticism of Alfred Marshall's Absolute domination count, of yeah. both um, Cambridge and his pupils were spread around On the relationship between Keynes and Hayek despite the awful things Keynesians and Hayek tended to write about each other, the perseverance are pretty good. They were, yeah. In fact, Keynes arranged to, I think, ha- help prevent Hayek, who was an Austrian, being interned during the yes, war, yes, yes. and certainly arranged for him to live yeah. in college in Cambridge. Mm, mm. Third point on central London. Back in the 1960s, the academic board here c- had to consider an offer from Croydon, provide us Ah, with space to move to Croydon it didn't get very far because John Griffiths, a wonderful professor of law here, got up and said, can you imagine the Croydon School of Economics? (laughs) (laughs) Well
2: there's no answer to
1: that, Jim, thanks for your insights Jim, by the way, is writing a history of the economics department, I think, we've been communicating, thanks for those the the question about personal relations is is quite important, I mean there were some very deeply uh, Deep hostilities, personally, at the school uh, at a certain times. There always has been, and that's the nature of institutions. Anyway, come on, let's live in the real world. Um, but there, were, there was there was there was kind of ways that Dalton, for instance, got on rather well with Robbins, where, whereas they disagree quite fundamentally. Everybody tells me the oh, height was a very nice gentleman, you know, a nice a nice chap. Mm-hmm. Quite often they don't say that about Popper, by the way, I've discovered. Um, so yeah, you you can overcome, and but, you know, let's let's say in the end, Jim. I mean, what is a university for? It is for the organisation of difference. In a pluralistic framework, where you can be a Marxist, a non Marxist, an anti Marxist, a free marketeer, you might be a social anthropologist, maybe a material anthropologist, you may be an historian who hates social science. I've not mentioned the poor audience, well, I have mentioned international history. Maybe they don't even like the idea of, of social science. I know most historians kind of you know, gag even on the term social science. But you can, you can have a civilized discussion within a school, and, that, and I think that's some of the points you brought out there, Jim. Very useful. Very helpful to say so. By the way, Robbins, who disagreed very strongly with Keynes, in a wonderful letter later on, I think this was at the, I think this was the Bretton Woods <laughs> meeting. He writes this memo about Keynes, and it's extraordinarily moving, an extraordinarily wonderful observation by Lionel Robbins, who had opposed much of Keynes's writings. And he said, "You look at Keynes, and here he is in the weakest position the British could ever be in, negotiating with Harry Dexter White, the American, who was also, by the way, a Soviet spy. But we won't go into that." Um, and the Americans have all the money. We've got all the brains. You know, you know the argument from Lord Halifax to Lord Keynes. But they've still got all the damn money. Uh, whatever, whatever brains we may have. And nonetheless, Keynes is negotiating a brilliant hand here to try to get the best out of the Americans on dollar preference and imperial preference. And, and he does it in a great Keynesian style. I mean, you know, a man of great genius. There's no doubt about it. Um, and he looks across at him and he says, you just cannot... He is probably, if you use the word genius, you don't use it very often, perhaps he is one. And this was a man who disagreed mm-hmm. with Keynes on so many mm-hmm. fundamental issues of political economy. I think that says a lot about Robbins, and about Keynes, of course. I think
0: there was a question at the back
1: there. Um, thank you very much for the, you know, absolutely fantastic talk. Um, there, there are two things that really strike me. Um, one is... I've always wondered how LSE came to kind of get such a prime site of you know real estate. And was, was that ever problematic? You know, even in 1895, it's <laughs> must no. so have no, been no, no. an amazing you know place to and for the Fabians to get it. Just seems has always seemed to be quite problematic, and I've never <laughs> had anybody to ask yes, about it. Yes. And the other thing is, in in a, in a similar vein, the size of the student body from 1895 maybe up to the the beginning of the Second World War. I'm, you know, surely it must have been. Minute to begin with and growing? I'm, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, concerned. very quickly on that. I mean, maybe Sue would like to come in okay. on this because Sue, Sue knows much more about this. And on the prime site, I mean, basically it wasn't a prime site at the beginning. No. I it mean, was a slum know, clearance. It was a slum clearance, you <laughs> know. A, I think Magnad Desai once said to me, we've got the most intelligent slum in the world. <laughs> and I, I think I know what Magnad was, was, was getting at. Um, the ability to build up the site, and it, it was, was partly down to web, Sydney. I think his, his contacts through the London County Council. Yeah, I mean, we, and, we got and it the, from
0: the London County Council and he was on the London yes. County Council. He was
1: what? on the London County Council and guess what? <laughs> <coughs> um, <coughs> transparency and, and later
0: on the ability to compulsorily purchase most of houghton street as yeah, well yeah, so yeah, um yeah. they had was, a problem getting rid of a butcher didn't they um, yeah and st clement's press yeah, but, so.
1: right. the other thing on the side issue is that i mean it, it, the raising of money i mean here we get this is an old old problem let's be honest uh there's not much property around here <laughs> it's, it's, there is it isn't being grown again uh buy it because you know it won't come back again ever on the market. But uh, uh, p- particularly uh, beverage was was particularly good at, at, at the acquisition, and he used a lot of American money. i think there twenty five percent of income mm. to the school wasn 't it? it came from like rockefellersco the Rockefellers. and then rockefeller twenty five percent and that that did a lot of purchasing of some very some very decent property much of which, of course, is now about to be torn down. There was that famous phrase, by the way, I don't know who, who invented it, Dawson, everybody wants to claim this, the LSE is, is, is the great building site on which the cement never sets. The concrete never, the concrete never, concrete never, never sets. sets. Yeah. Yeah. What was your second question, by the way, very quickly? Yeah, I mean, Sue, Sue could give you the, but I, I've got it more <coughs> The student numbers remain more or less the same through the whole beverage period, don't they? I think about, they do. About two, 2,000, 2,500. that's it. School, this, I mean, again, is quite an interesting aspect of why, how it is, the, I mean, I hate to use the kind of the pompous kind of, dare I say, Douglas Heard phrase. We punch above our weight, um, but for such a small place, it has certainly managed to do that, and this is reflected uh, in the, in the student. Now, even today, I mean, you know, I've just come back from some huge American campuses, <laughs> which stretch on forever, cities, you know, and, and we're never going to get much above what nine, ten, eleven thousand George, something of that, of that order. You know, so the question is not quantity, as we always say. It's always about Quality, <laughs> 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 and we do have some damn good students here. and I think the students here have been an essential part, mm-hmm. the virtual circle, as George put me some yeah. time ago. Okay. I yeah. think you
0: had a question, Dan?
1: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Eve Middleton Kelly, ideas. Oh, you. you said that at the beginning, um, research was very important. Yeah. Um, so, how do you see the evolution and the balance? between research and teaching Hmm. since the webs, because I have a a feeling that that (laughs) balance may have changed. Yes. It's the old conundrum, isn't it, Eve? It's the old old conundrum. I I think I was, however, hinting, not that I shouldn't do research. Again, a cliche, research-led teaching is always the best teaching. But nonetheless, the... And we've got to be fixated on research, because research is what defines a good university. And the best universities are those who do the best research. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that, that goes without saying. Nonetheless, we can't ignore the fact this comes at a price. It can come at a, it can come at a price. You know, a young, up-and-coming young, young you know, lecturer, or professor, everybody's professor now at the Senate. Um, don't approve of that, by the way. Took me a long time to get my stripes. You know, <laughs> you know, now everybody's a damn professor at the age of 28. Um, it comes at a price because you are rewarded increasingly for research, let's be perfectly honest. We may talk the talk on teaching, and we, do, we have still some very fine teachers there, don't get me wrong. But the reward structure, the incentive structure, is an incentive structure which takes you more towards research than does teaching you're not going to get a chair without some good books and some great articles in the great journals, etc., etc., etc. And if you're making rational calculation, then that's the kind of calculations that faculty will make. Will that take you away from teaching? It need not necessarily do so, but there's a good chance that it might. And I think students here are not shortchanged. I don't believe that, but there is a perception out there in the student body that, they, that the professor loves to do the research and teaching comes second. If that is a perception, it's something that has been addressed, it has been taught. This is why we created LSE 100, George, you know, three or four years ago. We helped build that up uh, to emphasise the importance of teaching across the whole of school. But th- there does remain that conundrum, Even I, I wish I had an easy answer to it, because if the incentive structures are such to reward research, then we should maybe be doing the same for teaching. But we are a university defined by what research is, and research is what a university does. So I'm not sure we can... It's a kind of you know, a circle, which doesn't seem to be an easier scope. Thank you. Thanks for the question.
0: Well, I'm now going to draw us to close as we get to 8 o'clock. Um, if you've got any more questions, uh, join us for a drink outside and take the opportunity to have a look at the exhibition and also the uh, photographs, Ghosts of the Past, combining LSE, past and present. But thanks once again to Mick for a great evening.
2: Thank you very much.